As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Very spooky. Hello. Hi. I feel like this episode is just the whole time going to have a little kitty ASMR in the background, just a little low rumble of purrs. A little purr. We should do a, now that I have these fosters who sleep on me all the time, I should just set up my mic and put it right next to them and start a kitty ASMR channel. Well, I've long told you that your voice is so incredibly soothing. So I feel like this would be a perfect segue into your sleep podcast where you just tell relaxing stories and you have purring in the background. That's actually my ideal way to go to bed. I'll put myself to sleep while I'm doing it. <laughs> Maybe it should just be live stream at that point. So it just... Ew, people watch me fall asleep. Drift off to... Well, I was thinking more like audio live. <laughs> oh, that's Video fine. live is a little creepy. But then what if when I fall asleep, there's like some weird dark like noise and there's a demon in my room and it's caught on audio that's literally like the same thing that happened to one of the listeners a few episodes ago when she was saying that her older sister and friend had recorded that audio tape <gasps> yes. and then they left the room and then on their audio tape of their like fake talk show they caught a spirit saying very violent things yeah yes aggressive um, and also, maybe this show is a little bit aggressive. This is Two Girls, One Ghost. Two Girls, One Ghost. And this episode of Two Girls, One Ghost is sponsored by Warby Parker, Noom, BetterHelp, Native, Magic Spoon, and Pretty Litter. And you know what used to really haunt me? Clay Cat Litter. It's full of scary additives, which is why I switched to Pretty Litter. Pretty Litter's clean minerals are easy for me and safe for my cat, and it's a health indicator. Visit prettylitter.com and use code TGOG for 20% off your first order. And we are your ghostesses. That's Corinne. Hi. And I'm Sabrina. I have a story to tell you. And it's not okay. my story, but it's a ghost, ghost story? story. Yes, it's from earlier today. I was at work. We're starting to go into work a couple times a week. And I think people knew, most people kind of like knew I had the this podcast, but I think the comfort levels in telling ghost stories have increased since we've been spending more time in person together. Ooh. And so today, one of my coworkers was like, Corinne, can you come sit down next to me and tell me some ghost stories that are PG-13 because I'm scared, but I want to hear some. So I was like, okay, fine. And I'm telling her about, you know, the ghost dog that was in my house and some of the comfort 
spirits. Yeah, nice ones. Yeah, the nice ones. A couple of the less scary college incidents, telling her all of those things. And then I noticed that there's another one of my coworkers who's a couple seats down from her who really is like looking like she's calling upon some memories and like she's got a story to tell. She doesn't look surprised or spooked. She's just kind of sitting there. And so I'm like, hey, and I won't say her name because I totally did not ask permission to retell the story. So I don't know <laughs> if she wants it to be out there. But I was like, hey, you seem like you've seen a ghost before. She was oh like, my gosh. Mm. And she turns her chair. <gasps> oh, that's the best. And she goes, I used to not believe in any of this stuff. But and then goes on to tell me and I'll tell you what she told me. Okay. So growing up, she lived in Cambodia. And when she was 12, her and her cousin at night were walking down this path and it was covered with mango trees and she said the moonlight was so bright and she remembers it so vividly and i was like wow way to set up this scenario it looks or it, it sounds beautiful and she was like no no no, it was spooky it was spooky oh so her and her cousin are going together down this path and her cousin has her you know they're younger preteen aged girls and so her cousin is piggybacking her and they're kind of just like going together down this path mm-hmm. and then she starts to say to her cousin Stop touching my leg. What are you doing? Why are you touching my leg like that? Uh. And her cousin's like, I'm not touching your leg. And they're going back and forth a little bit. And she's like, stop. And her cousin's like, I'm not fooling with you. Like, I'm my hands are around your legs. You're piggybacked right now. And then her cousin suddenly gets touched. And her cousin <gasps> freaks out. Her leg was then touched. She yeets my coworker off of her back. And she falls to the ground. And then her cousin just bolts, takes off, and is running away. And so then my coworker gets up and starts running after her, like trying to also save herself after being ditched. And they are so, so freaked out. And they're like, oh, my God, that was so scary. Like, what the hell was that? The next morning, they are again on that path. And they're this time like coming back the other way. And they hadn't noticed it at night. But in the daylight, they noticed that there was a mound, and that mound was a burial site. So what she was telling me was in Cambodia, it's pretty obvious where people are buried because the earth won't be flat. You'll have a mound, and oftentimes people will leave little things and flowers and like little Mm -hmm. offerings or whatever. And they found out after noticing this in the daylight – that right there buried was an eight-year-old girl who had drowned nearby. Oh, my gosh. And so now they believe it was the exact spot that they were passing where they were being touched and tugged. They believe that it was the little girl that was grabbing at Oh, my them. gosh. Oh, I have chills again. It's so interesting because it was, like, at the legs, so it almost feels like a hand reaching out from the ground. Yeah, I know. But then I was also like, okay, these girls were 12 – That girl was like eight or nine who passed away. She might have just seen older girls and been like, oh, I want to play. You know, they have them piggybacked. Yeah. They're piggybacking one another. And so I think it would be an easy, whoa. (gasps) What? I don't know. This is really scary. There's a huge gust of wind. And honestly, my window started sounding like it was about to crack. And I am (laughs) like 30 floors high. So I'm like, fuck. We're fine. We're fine. Not to like make your fears worse. What? But did you see about that building that collapsed in Miami? Yes, I did. So awful. It's literally the word. I can't even imagine. It just blows my mind that a building can collapse. Like how does that go on? How does that like weak structure go unnoticed? I don't I don't know. I don't think it was unnoticed. I think that they very much knew that it wasn't up to code. I just don't know why why the response after that isn't to have people move out, move everyone out. Yeah, move everyone in that entire complex out. (laughs) 
I'm dying because my mom just doesn't know how to use GIFs. Yeah. And she just sent a text, but it's a video of her recording a computer screen of a GIF. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, moms. That's awesome. That's so funny. I'm going to have to show her that she can find GIFs on her iPhone. On her phone. You know, the sky's getting really, really dark. And the channel, the water channel that goes into (sighs) the Charles from the ocean that I can see from my apartment is suddenly getting so fast. I think there's a huge storm about to come in. So while you have a cat burning in the background. you're making me so jealous. I might have some thunder and lightning. I can't – I think there's nothing better than a summer thunderstorm. Oh, it's so good. Especially to – like – Massachusetts gets some loud thunder, like louder than I ever heard in Vermont. Wow. But there are some areas that depending on the way that basically like the landscape is with mountains and the way that the like air pressure, all of that moves through the space, you can get crazy loud thunderstorms. I'm so jealous. And in parts of like rural New Hampshire, Maine, it sounds like the world is ending. It sounds like Zeus is coming down and he has just cracked open earth and he's after you. Ugh, I want that. I want that more than I want to be abducted by aliens. That truly, Nick and I go to sleep listening to thunderstorm sounds. Really? It's so soothing. It is. You know what's really like, I think if I were actually given the option to do it, I'd be terrified and be like, no, 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 I don't want to do this. But I've always wondered what it would be like to be in a lighthouse during (gasps) a really intense storm. Like one on an island by itself. Where like the door is whipping back and forth down below and you're just huddled in the room upstairs. That's I mean, what, I mean, it's scary. It's like life. Yeah. <laughs> Are you alone? Are you with people? Are you experiencing this as lighthouse keepers used to experience it where you're isolated and alone? Or? I think so. Okay. So you just want one night of it. You don't want like a whole, you don't want to be. You know, some people jump out of planes for a thrill, and I think I want one scary night in a lighthouse. <laughs> <laughs> That's my version. Oh my gosh. I think we can make this happen for you. I don't know. There was, of course, on TikTok, I saw a video of this one lighthouse keeper, and I cannot remember for the life of me which lighthouse it was. And it was only like a temporary job. The person was just there for the summer. But they would walk out of the lighthouse on this island, and there would be a ton of elephant seals around them. And I was like, this is magic. True magic. That is really cool. Should I, because I don't have a job right now, should that be my temporary job? (laughs) Honestly, yeah. There are actually kind of fun. I swear they're all in Canada because I feel like some of the best things are there. But I know that there are some kind of like not revolutionary war era, but just some like 1700s style camps where you can basically be hired to be a like in character groundskeeper. Like you can just go like your job is to dress up like bake bread when you feel in the I'm always house in the mood to for bake. people that are like coming by. I'm like, that's kind of my dream job to just, you know, chill in a hammock and then make stuff when I want. You wouldn't even have to be in character. That's just like a dream life. It is. My question though is like, what are the qualifications needed to be a lighthouse keeper? And are lighthouses even functioning anymore? I mean, they're definitely functioning, but the question is... Like, do they need to be manned? They're 100% functioning because ships still depend on them at night to to make sure that they're not, you know, having any malfunctions with the GPS or whatever and coming into land. But are they still manned? That's, yeah, I think that's the question because I would assume a lot of it's automated. 
where you have yeah. the light going around and you can satellite into it. I would assume. Right. I'm not sure. There are quite a few lighthouses around here. I should go on like an official tour and ask these questions. Well, you now have given me something to procrastinate with tomorrow when I'm writing. I will instead (laughs) be looking up jobs as a lighthouse keeper. (laughs) You should. It's one of those obscure jobs that I feel like there's probably only five openings a year and it's so hard to get. Or it's really easy to get because it's one of those Because not a lot of people want to do it. Yeah, either. Yeah. Or they just like don't think about it. Listen, this will be research. That's what I'm going to keep telling myself. You know what job I want? What? And this is like my worst nightmare, but I would do it because I'm money motivated. There's one job (laughs) where there's a really, really tall tower and it's super, super dangerous to climb up this tower and it's like in the middle of a huge nothingness. And so I think the chances of being struck by lightning or falling or electrocuted or whatever is high. And can't remember how tall it is, where it is, many details about it. All I know is that there's one part that needs to be changed out, like a light bulb or something needs to be changed every year. And one man goes and he does it. And I think he gets paid something like $70,000 to go up one time a year and do this thing. Yeah. I don't think I don't want to do that at all. Corinne, you have to like climb up a ladder, are you saying? There's no way you do this. You push me in front of you. Oh, I could climb up, but I could I could not climb down. <laughs> Yeah, but like as you're climbing up, I imagine you would look down and you'd just be like, no, 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 no. And then they'd have to like bring in a helicopter to get you down. Yeah, probably. Unless they had a really, really long, long gradual zip line where I wasn't really going that fast. (laughs) And someone else was already waiting at the top to make sure that I was secured into the zip line correctly. So now they're paying two people (laughs) $70,000. I'll I'll split the proceeds. The proceeds. (laughs) Like I'm a Proceeds. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, no, I think we're better suited. It's a charity for all of you guys, your ears to listen to this. Yeah, I think I was just going to say, I think we're better suited for um, talking behind our microphone and sitting on our butts. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Okay, if you didn't guess it from last week's episode, because we um, alluded to this topic quite a lot in that episode, the Encounters episode of last week, we are doing a topic picked by a Patreon donor. 
I'm basically saying as many words as possible before saying the topic just to build up tension. <laughs> the Patreon donor is Idle Whistle. <laughs> so thank you, Idle Whistle, for thank this you. recommendation. Clearly, we loved it because last week we chose a lot of emails that had similar themes. Yes, it was on our mind for sure. Drum roll. That was a beautiful drum roll. <laughs> It was more like, um, <laughs> you know, like the bells they would play before um, morning announcements. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the topic is near-death experiences. NDEs, baby. Yeah. it's There are so many stories. It is such a fascinating topic. Seriously, so fascinating. There's just, it makes me spiral because I just go into such a deep hole and it solidifies so many more thoughts that I have about what happens in the afterlife. And it just goes, I don't know. I feel like if anyone has the answer, it's these people who experienced completely agree or death, especially because so, so many of the experiences people have are strikingly similar. Yes. So when you're like, oh, it's just, you know, the chemicals in your brain making you hallucinate. So everyone is hallucinating the same thing? Yep. No, they're not. I mean, no. uh, No. There's no way. It's, yeah. Something's going on. really, really beautiful. And for those of you who don't know, I'm sure you would gather in a moment when we get into it, but near-death experiences is basically what what it says it is. It's people who are in like a really dire moment near to death, cardiac arrest, there's, you know, drowning incidents, kind of any fatal accident or health problem where they die for a certain amount of time and then come back. And in that time between death and being brought back to life, they have these otherworldly experiences. Mm -hmm. I think you're up first. I am. All right, let's do it. Okay. So I was thinking about how when we think about near-death experiences or when we think about just like people crossing over, so often we hear of the bright light. Mm -hmm. You see the bright light, you follow the bright light, your loved ones are greeting you on the other side. But then I was like, okay, but has anyone experienced anything a little bit darker? What if it's not all of these fields of flowers and greetings from childhood pets? What if something a little darker happens. Has anyone seen the certain side of hell or purgatory <gasps> or what happened? Of course you went this way. <laughs> and the evil laugh to match. Yes. This brings me to Dr. Rajiv Party. Paul Perry has written a few articles on Dr. Party, which is the source of most of my research. And actually the two of them partnered up and co-wrote a book together about Dr. Party's experience called Dying to Wake Up, which I think is the best title I've ever heard. Oh, that's cool. And he also has four other books that are New York Times bestsellers. Casual. I'm like, dang, of course. This guy's done everything. He's a huge success. So a world-renowned cardiac anesthesiologist, Dr. Party was formerly the chief of anesthesiology at Heart Hospital in Bakersfield, California. And he was living the life like a baller, high-paying job, a 11,000-square-foot mansion, like 11,000 square feet. I don't even – I can't even picture that. 
immediately. Multiple luxury vehicles. He just literally had whatever he wanted. And he was living the American dream. He moved to America. He moved to California. He wanted that dream of being rich, like what you saw rich people do depicted on American television. So that's who he became. That was him. And he actually gave up medicine to become a stock trader, chasing more money, bigger dreams, more opportunities. This guy's smart. He's very smart. Talk about money um, money motivated. Super money motivated. Just like me. He's trying to climb that ladder, change that <laughs> light bulb, but he's doing it in maybe a safer way. So everything's going great for him. Life is shiny and gold and money is flowing and he gets whatever he wants. But then in August of 2008, his luck turned. He was diagnosed with prostate cancer and he then underwent surgery to treat it, which ended up causing a lot of complications further down the line. And he had so much pain from it. And so because of the pain and because of these complications, Dr. Party had to go into three more surgeries within the next few months. And luckily, the cancer was treated. Dr. Party was now cancer-free, but the pain was excruciating. The pain was not gone. So he couldn't return to work. He was overcome by these physical ailments and, and pain that was left over from the treatment. And he was just like unable to enjoy life and go on. He was dependent on pain meds. He was wearing diapers. Mm. His addiction to pain medication was also accompanied by a diagnosis of depression. So there was just, it was a dark time for Dr. Party. Two and a half years after his original diagnosis, he then had to undergo yet another surgery. So he checks himself into UCLA Medical Center for the surgery, a surgery to get an artificial urinary sphincter put in. But after the surgery, his temperature went up. It spiked to 104 degrees. His pelvic area inflamed. He wasn't able to urinate. And so the medical personnel were like, oh my gosh, let's put him on heavy, heavy antibiotics. Keep him here. Monitor him. Infection city. Something's going wrong. Ten days later, Christmas Eve, his infection and fever take a turn for the worse. And he's transferred to the emergency ward of the hospital And then in his last memory, he feels excruciating pain and he's having a catheter put into him. And then he blacks out and he wakes up, but he's not awake in his physical body. He's not in his body. He's floating outside of it (gasps) and he's confused. He thinks maybe he's hallucinating like they gave him something extra in the meds. He's like, did they give me ketamine? What's going on? And so he looks down at his body being operated on and realizes as it all becomes more clear to him that he's truly conscious, just not in his physical body. He's separated from his physical body. So he stays there for a while and he watches the surgery being performed on him. And he's listening as the anesthesiologist that's in the room of the operating room is telling dirty jokes. He, this this part's gross. But because of his infection, there was a really foul smell coming from his body. And he watched as one of the nurses was going around and applying eucalyptus-scented water on the surgical masks of everybody in the room to block out some of that scent, which I didn't know they do, which I think is brilliant. Me neither. Also, sorry, real quick. Mm -hmm. I'm so curious, and granted, other things I'm sure are going through the the mind at this point, but – since he could see his body on the operating table, I wonder if he looked into a mirror. If you could look into a mirror, what would you see? Oh, that's a really good question. It's like when a vampire looks into a mirror. Exactly. And they see nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I need to know now. It's kind of oh. like, what does a soul look like? I feel like if we go deep enough into people's near-death experiences, there's got to be one person who's done it, right? Right. 
Or maybe. would you even remember because there's or maybe so much going on? you're just not as vain when you're in that in-between and there's no desire to look at yourself. Yeah, I don't know. I have no idea. But at least for Dr. Party, he he does – so at first he was like very focused on what was happening and watching his body being operated on. Mm-hmm. But then his focus started to shift and suddenly he was floating outside of the operating room and closer to a sound. And the sound was of his mom and his sister talking. It was their voices. But they weren't in the hospital. They weren't even in America. They were in India and they were making dinner. And he heard them talking about the food that they were making. He could see (gasps) the weather outside. It was cold. It was foggy. Oh, my gosh. He saw that it was that they had a small electric heater on the floor turned all the way up to warm his family members. And he saw his mom and his sister bundled up in warm clothing as they were preparing the food. Wow. So Dr. Party says that his feeling, it was euphoric. So while he was in the OR, he was like, you know, very focused and he understood, I guess, was just coming to understand that he was separated from his body. But after he started to allow himself to drift and to go see his mom and sister, he said that his presence didn't actually feel singular anymore. He said it felt like he was one with the world and that his presence was spreading out across the world. Oh, my goodness. I have – this is just – Every story about this just gives me chills because they're so powerful. They're so powerful. Yeah. And that sounds amazing. I mean, he literally said it was euphoria. But then that changed quickly when Dr. Party felt himself being pulled into the dark. (laughs) He saw a wildfire. The sky above him was gray with clouds and lightning. The air around him thick, smelling like burning meat. And he's pulled deeper again. He could hear people fighting, people screaming, suffering. And he realized in that moment that he was most likely in hell. And this made him reflect. He was like, how the heck did I end up here? What happened to the euphoria? I thought that I was going somewhere great. And why was this gray, dark place surrounded with torture and wandering souls now the place that he was in? Mm. And so this made him essentially reflect on himself. And he realized that much of his life was spent climbing the ladder, that he didn't really care about- To change the light bulb. He Yes. <laughs> and he was just like, you know, when he would meet a new person, he essentially said all he was thinking about when meeting that new person is what can I get out of them? Like, what is my mm. relationship? How is, how is knowing them and having a relationship with them going to benefit me from a social and like financial standpoint instead of just, you know, right. emotional well-being of relationships? And so standing here in hell, Dr. Party realized, oh, my God, I was living without love. He was harsh. He was a social climber. He found joy only in getting ahead of others. He cared about himself. He didn't really care about his wife or his patients. And as soon as he had this realization and accepted it, the gray around him dissipated. (gasps) And he yelled out and he started crying for help. And his father came down in a tunnel of light to help him walk out of the dark. And Dr. Party said that his father growing up, they didn't have a good relationship. His father was actually quite abusive. But in that moment, Dr. Party was immediately able to forgive his father and let go of all that anger. Oh, my gosh. And then he went into a different realm where he met guardian angels who spoke to him about consciousness-based medicine, helping him to focus on forgiving, loving, healing. And after this meeting with these angels, oh, my God, this is awesome. What? I need to – here, wait. Can you see this? The rainbow. There's literally – there's a giant it's rainbow beautiful. out the Sun beaming down on one side of the river. Gray darkness 
a rain on the other side and a huge thunderclap just happened. Oh, I love weather. <laughs> Taking a pick. Okay. So he wakes up and he wakes up in his body and he's recovering from surgery. And he is waking up essentially as a completely different person than the one who was first admitted to the hospital because now he had all of these realizations. His life has changed. His attitude has changed. He's now focused on advocating for a consciousness-based approach to healing. He operates as a spiritual healer. He spends time prioritizing Whoa. his family and helping others. And he's, you know, gone are the days of chasing square footage and expensive cars. And his family has been quite supportive of this, though actually some of his kids are agnostic, which I think is just so funny and so ironic that they didn't just like fully lean into all of his teachings yeah. <laughs> and his new realizations. But Dr. Party's experience transformed him and he said – that he used to put people to sleep, but now his purpose is to wake them up. Oh, that is really beautiful. It really is. He's remained very open and he says that through meditation, he's been able to experience very spiritual encounters and he's still connected like in his waking body, I guess meditating body. He's connected with angels. Whoa. Post near-death experience and astral travel or whatever, he's able to still have some contact with the other side when meditating. And so I was like, okay, this is extremely fascinating. This feels very Doctor Strange. Yeah. But what made me even more fascinated with this story is it reminded me of a TikTok that I had watched <laughs> of this woman. Her name is Rachel Dempster. And on TikTok, her name is Ray Ray Demp. And she stitched a video of another woman. This other woman was asking about what happened during people's near-death experiences. And mm -hmm. Dr. Party's experience in this, like, dark, hellish area reminded me so much of what happened to Rachel. So I was like, okay, let me just also add Rachel's story to this so you can get this. Okay, amazing. Okay. So 10 years ago, Rachel's in college and she overdoses. She was dead for seven minutes. Seven? But during those seven minutes, Rachel experienced so much. Seven minutes. So unlike Dr. Party, who hovered above his body for a while – Rachel pretty much immediately found herself in this giant field with a tree in the middle and a body of water in front of it. And she said the tree was so massive. Like, you can't even understand how massive this tree is. It's not like redwood status. It is literally like if you picture yourself going up to a tree that we know mm -hmm. outside today and then visualize yourself as being just a quarter inch of, up that tree, that is how enormous this tree was. So it was – whoa. I don't, I'm not good at doing these visualizations, but like, I don't know, 10,000, 100,000 people stuck together would be the size of this tree. Whoa. And when she looked past the tree, the land was endless. She was like, I can't describe it. It's like times a billion of what you think when you see the horizon and you can see the horizon line. So it was just that's a very common theme. I, even in the stories I'm about to, when I read them, like a few of them were like, it was just like, as far as the eye could see, it just continued. And to the lovely bones, do you remember when she goes into that sort of like in-between area yes. and there's that huge grassy field in the tree and it's like golden and bright and goes on forever? Ugh, now I want to watch that again. Yeah, so good. So she looks past the tree, the land is endless, and there is just no end in sight. It just continues. And she can hear animals around her. She can hear birds in the distance. She can hear people talking. Everything's really bright. Everything's really vibrant. They're neon colors, basically. Strikingly beautiful. And it comes with the feeling of the warmest childhood memories. That was the best way she could Whoa. describe it. And then suddenly, 
she heard a million voices talking to her at once, telling her what it means to be a good person and how your actions trickle and affect others. And these voices she knew in the moment were of higher beings, and she felt connected the entire time to the universe as they spoke to her. So it's kind of similar to Dr. Party being like, I felt like I was suddenly expanding and, and connected to everything. Yeah. And that's similar to what Rachel was experiencing. And she described the voices as not really audible voices. It was more of like messages being placed into her mind and she could see and experience all that it meant. And she was told that her energy has a chain reaction that reaches seven other people. So basically, if she was rude or negative towards someone, that person would then carry the same energy to someone else who would then carry it the same bad energy oh, wow. to someone else and so on. And essentially the same for positive energy. So basically talking about like, you know, karma and passing on good energy and blah, blah, blah. Right. So Rachel's time here was great, but cut short when she asked what it meant to be a bad person. And then quickly. She asked it? She asked. Because the conversation <gasps> that she was hearing from all these voices were what it meant to be a good person. and, and Right. And all of that and getting all the knowledge. So she wanted to know, you know, what's the, what's the difference? What makes you a bad person? And so when right. she asked that, she was thrown into a new dimension, a place that she calls the Black Pit. And in this space, she was surrounded by millions of other people, but she couldn't actually quite see anyone fully. So she describes it as – and on her TikTok, she she put up a picture of, of a mosh pit that was basically like a black and white photo of people moving around, but the motion is so much faster than the shutter speed in which the camera takes the image. And so it's like super blurry and you can't oh, – you know that there's a person there, but you can't make any – any uh, It all out, yeah. Yeah. You don't know what they look like. There's no defining features visible. So she said that that's essentially what it was like, and the black pit was filled with darkness. Everyone around her had no color. It was just gray, nude shapes passing one another, not being able to communicate with one another. She said it's literally like being in a mosh pit where you're a few inches away. You know someone's there, but you can't actually, like, reach out. You can't talk to them. You can't connect with them. You can't, like, grab someone in and have any connection. You're just oh my gosh. moving past each other in this a horrible state of depression. It's Halloween Town. Yes. The movie theater of Halloween Town. Literally, yes. She said people were screaming out. They were crying. They were calling for help. They were yelling people's names. They were begging for their moms. Oh, my gosh. And her time in the pit felt extremely long. She said it felt so much longer than the time that she had felt in the grassy, tree, beautiful, wonderful area. She said it felt like an eternity. And the entire space felt like depression. It just felt like a huge depressive state all around. And in her yeah. last moments of being in the black pit, she actually did have one strange encounter. So while she couldn't connect or talk to or interact with anybody else, in her very last moment, she turns around and she sees a little boy behind her and his eyes were jet black and he was screaming for his mom. And then she wakes up. She wakes up in the ICU and her mom is there with her. And Rachel has no memory of this, by the way, but her mom told, tells her that when she wakes up, Rachel asks her mom, who are all these people with you, like behind you? And there was no one there. But Rachel <gasps> continued to actually see shadow people frequently after her near-death experience. And she still sees them on occasion today, just with less frequency than she did when she first Whoa. woke up. And so then she spent two months at a rehab facility and she matched with this – or was matched with this therapist there. And during one of the first sessions, Rachel tells her therapist in the rehab facility about her near-death near experience. This therapist stops her, grabs a huge binder, asks if she can record Rachel's experience. 
She documents it into the binder. She sets a recorder to tape audibly what Rachel's telling. The therapist tells her the binder is filled with 3,000 other near-death experiences that she has personally has recorded. And after Rachel finished telling her entire story, the therapist told Rachel that almost all of the other 3,000 recorded near-death experiences in that binder are nearly an exact match to her story. 3,000? 3,000. How do we get access to the binder? Uh, This woman needs to write a book. Like, this has got to be... It's got to be in the making, I would hope. Wow. Isn't that wild? But I just thought it was really, really fascinating that they're... The experiences of like the darkness in the pit and people screaming out were so similar between Rachel and Dr. Party and they had both first been in this like nice, kind space and then were immediately thrown, basically shown like, here's what happens when you're good and here's what happens when you're bad. So I feel like the universe knew that they were going to live and they were going to be sent back. And that's why it was like, you have a choice of being consciously good or continuing on the path that you're in and being one of these souls that's like forever lost. Yeah. It's also really interesting how Dr. Party was shown the light first, Mm -hmm. almost as a, this is what you could have. And then immediately took it away from him to make him reflect on his life because he could have seen the light and, you know, gone back to his life and been like, oh, I'm great. I'm going to go live in the light after this. But it's because he saw the dark that he was able to recognize the mistakes he had made in his life. Right. Yeah. I mean, it changed both of them. And you know what else is interesting? Is So they had very similar experiences, and they both went into the darkness, into the pit, with all of the wandering, lost, tormented souls, and were brought back out. Dr. Party goes on to meditate and connect with angels. Rachel goes on to basically be, I don't know if it's stalked is the right word, but she sees the shadow people. I wonder, though, if that's like those spirits now know who she is, and they're still asking for help from her. Like they almost latched onto her. And now Rachel is going to be ghost whisperer and have to help these people find peace. You know, the Pixar movie, Soul, just I feel like really (laughs) accurate. And it reminds me of all the people that are just like wandering in the sand dunes, essentially, and are just lost. Oh, interesting. Oh, that's totally what that is. Right? 100%. They probably did so much research into like near-death experiences and in-between life. Because that's what the scene is. It's this like really dark kind of grayscale area. And all these souls are just mindlessly like murmuring, talking to themselves, passing by each other not able to to do anything or interact with anyone. And it takes someone else going in to save them, but they can't save themselves or help each other. It's wow. really interesting. I'm so fascinated by just like the euphoric nature and like the nothingness combined with everything, you know? Mm-hmm. Again, I mean, the fact that Rachel's doctor said – There's 3,000 other entries and they're all exactly the same. Like all of these stories have so many things in common, but it's just, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, kind of beautiful to think that this is only the beginning. What we're living right now isn't when you die, it's not the end. Yeah. 
It's also really interesting, too, that even though Rachel and Dr. Party both felt like themselves, you know, like felt like they were still Rachel and Dr. Party, that when they were being spoken to, like the way that Rachel describes hundreds of voices talking to her at once, it feels very Bruce Almighty, you know, when Bruce Almighty becomes God and all of the prayers come through his head and he hears everybody all at once but that they were still able to understand the messages and like retain them. I don't know. Obviously things work different when you're (laughs) on the other side. And it's also, yeah, it's amazing that they can remember all of that. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not, I mean, not that I'm saying that near-death experiences and alien abductions are similar, but kind of in the way that like, I feel like there's this really strange experience that you have that is otherworldly, but then for alien abductions, their memory is wiped. But mm-hmm. with this, with near-death experiences, it almost is you purposefully remember almost to use that knowledge when you go back to your life. Right. Like I feel like Rachel is meant to tell her story and maybe these shadows are continuing to appear to her because there's something she's supposed to do for them and with them. Like there's a greater purpose. Oh, interesting. That's so It's so scary, though, because I feel like suddenly she's got perhaps these other responsibilities that she didn't ask for. She did not know that she would be responsible for these things. And it also sounds like she doesn't quite know what to do next. Based on her videos, she was just like, yeah, I would see them. I see them less frequently now. But there was no talks of like... Hey, you know, I'm I'm now a practicing witch or I'm super in tune right, and I meditate right. all the time. Like there was no Yeah, but I again, I don't think it's overnight, right? Like you it's with any experience, it takes time to process it and mm-hmm. learn from it and maybe even decide or have it change or alter what your passion in life is. I don't know. I feel like there's so many possibilities. Mm-hmm. But yeah, wow. Fascinating. So fascinating. I imagine having a near-death experience, while incredible that you survive, it's also probably pretty traumatic and hard to deal with on your own. Okay, so I was also similarly interested in a different take on near-death experiences, but I didn't go as dark. <laughs> I'm shocked. I mean, I guess I kind in a weird way, I did kind of go dark, but like, anyway. Basically, I stumbled upon a statistic that was really, really interesting. So according to the International Association for Near-Death Studies, which I had no clue was a association, but now I want to talk to someone who works there. But the International Association for Near-Death Studies estimates that nearly 85% of children who undergo cardiac arrest have a near-death experience, which is Mm -hmm. a rate twice as high as that for adults. There are even reports of infants who have near-death experiences and remember them so distinctly that they can recount them once they're old enough to articulate their experiences. So it sticks with them. Wait, okay. Also, if you just said 85% of children who who essentially like die have near-death experiences and that's double the amount of adults, that means like 40% of people, almost half of the people who die experience near-death experiences or like come back, sorry, come back with an actual story. Cause obviously it was near death. (laughs) I was like, well, a lot of those people are probably dead. If they're (laughs) 100% of the people who experience experience near-death experiences, (laughs) but 50%. We all know math is not your thing. (laughs) It's okay. 
50% go to the other <laughs> side, basically. Come back with some story to tell. Yep. Yeah. So it's a, I mean, it's a pretty high number. And then I'll get into like some, I basically started reading like medical journals because I was so fascinated by this. And there are a ton of people who have actually done studies on near death experiences, mm. which I just think is so fascinating, but I don't blame them because I started doing the same thing <laughs> as I was doing the research for this. Basically after reading those stats, I was like, oh my gosh, I know what I'm going to do for this episode. I'm going to do the stories of children who have experienced near death experiences And it's so fascinating because children, I just feel like are so pure and they don't have the notion or even like the perception of what the afterlife is at such a young age. Like that's not formed until you're older. Or like what is faux pas and what is. Right. And yeah, they might know like someone who passed away, but like, I just feel like that understanding of what that means isn't necessarily formed in your brain at Mm -hmm. that age. So it just like emphasizes the fact that they're having these near-death experiences and can recount them and they're so similar and they're like it it just makes me 100% confident that these are real and that there is something on the other side of this physical life which is just really reassuring so similar to adults children see deceased loved ones and pets and relatives that they've never even met during their near-death experiences And I'm going to tell you, I think, like, four different near-death experiences of children. It's basically – I'm calling this the episode of the buffet of near-death experiences. The buffet. The buffet. (laughs) Okay. So this is the story of Ingrid Honkala. She grew up in the mountains of Columbia in the early 1970s. And one morning, while her parents were out working, trying to provide for their small family, a two-year-old Ingrid and her sister decided to play catch across this, like – basically large water tank that they had that was kind of built into the ground for water. And they were like, how fun would it be to like play catch over it? So they're throwing the ball back and forth over the tank when the ball falls into the tank and Ingrid tries to reach over the ledge and reach it, but fell headfirst and plunged into the freezing cold water tank. She sank to the bottom and was struggling to get out and get back to the surface. And so she was struggling and it was painful But soon, the struggle dissipated, and she felt a peace. The last sound she remembers is hearing her heart pumping in her chest frantically, and then it fell silent, and she felt serene. She said it was absolute silence, and she saw light and bubbles, and she started to chase the bubbles. And when she turned around, she saw a body in the water and knew it was her body. (gasps) Oh. And in that moment, she thought... I'm not going back. And so instead, she continued to follow these lights. She just like felt so serene and peaceful with these lights. So she's following the lights and then finds herself surrounded by flowers and this like beautiful, breathtaking plane that just goes on forever, similar to what you were saying in your stories. Mm -hmm. And she's taking in this beauty and she starts to feel weightless and it felt like she was floating and all the pain and fear that she had felt moments ago just disappeared. And then she could see things that were going on around the water tank that her physical body was drowning in. She saw the maid listening to the radio inside the house and she even could tell the soap opera that the maid was listening to because it was like that clear to her. And then she traveled and saw her mother walking blissfully unaware to work. And all of these moments just were so clear to her. Like she just knew everything. She also like knew people's feelings and thoughts almost. Wow. And Ingrid later stated that she went from a place of absolute horror to a place of absolute joy. 
And according to her, that feeling of joy never left her. She said that when she was in this like space, in this otherworldly space, she felt for the first time in her two years of life that she was finally home. Like that's how she described it. Like she, what she was living in her physical body was Mm -hmm. not a real home, but this place outside of her body was home. She said it felt more real than any reality we live in this physical plane. And she described it as the sense of non-self. There was no color, thought, meaning. She was existence itself. And then she survived. So she was rescued out of this water tank and she came back with abilities that she didn't have before. So very shortly after this near-death experience, she could read and write. She's two years old, maybe almost three years old at this point. And she could figure out complicated mathematical problems and solve complex puzzles that no three-year-old should have been able to do. What the heck? Yeah. And everyone was very confused by this, right? Because they're like, they had no explanation. And she was talking about this near-death experience. And no one really knew what that meant. It wasn't a very popular or commonly talked about thing. There's no internet. There's no way to Google it or WebMD what was going on. Mm -hmm. And so her family was having a really hard time helping her. And she was having a really hard time relating to them. She started to pull away from them. And one night, Ingrid was in bed, and it was pretty recently after this incident. She felt really alone and low because no one understood her. And that night, while she was in bed and closing her eyes, she was visited by the same colors and lights that she had seen when she was in the bottom of the water tank, right before she split from her body. And the lights spoke to her, and they touched her, and immediately she felt a sense of calm. And the lights continue to appear to her throughout her life. They give her comfort and they helped her adjust back to her life. And they told her that people don't understand. And even though she knows more about the life and the world, other Mm -hmm. people don't understand. And they told her that she doesn't have to talk about it because it doesn't matter. It's as long as she knows. And she was two when this happened? Two. Two. Whoa. And so Ingrid has gone on to get a PhD in marine sciences, which I think is amazing given that she almost drowned and now has a career in the marine mm-hmm. in water. Um, she's also written a book about her experience called A Brightly Guided Life, which is all about how the experience led her to understand her inner self. She speaks often about her near-death experience and has been a guest speaker at many events and on a few podcasts and YouTube videos. And I found one that was like 45 minutes long and I was like, okay, I want to be able to cover multiple stories. Like I'll listen to like, you know, I'll skip through and just listen to make sure I got all the details. But Corinne, I started listening and watching this video and I was mesmerized. Mm -hmm. She is just, she has this aura about her and I highly recommend just do a quick Google search of Ingrid Hankala. I guarantee you will feel the same way I did. Like I truly feel like she could lead meditations. I just feel like she would be a great – I'm not comparing people who have near-death experiences to cult leaders, but I feel like I would <laughs> join her cult because she's so mesmerizing. Like you just feel calm around her, which just to me proves that whatever calmness she experienced in this near-death experience, she almost became. Mm. Like she has become a part of the afterlife that's living in this life, which I think is really I, – I don't know. There's just something I about I need to her. watch these videos. I'm going to watch it once we're done. Yeah. I ended up watching the whole thing. It's great. <laughs> I want to okay. read the book too. Yeah, I know. Me too. 
So the next story is about a young girl named Natasha who was born in Cardiff in Wales. And she was born deaf. So at nine years old, she had a terrible bout of whooping cough. And it was so bad that the doctors told her parents that Natasha was not likely to survive the night. So obviously, her parents are heartbroken. and They're helpless. They bring Natasha home to their house to make her comfortable and have her, you know, sadly pass away, but in her own bed. So that night, Natasha is falling asleep. And she does. She falls asleep easily. But then she's woken up by a bright light. She said the light was spilling into the room around the edge of the door and she could hear her name being called. Keep in mind, she's deaf. She's hearing her name being called. So she got up to see what the light was, but as she turned around in the room, she realized she was still asleep in the bed. She saw her body in the bed, but she was walking and moving around. But she didn't spend time lingering on it because the voice kept calling her. So she went to find the voice and she opened her bedroom door and found the hallway was just pure, brilliant white light. And she stepped into it and she had no fear. And she kept saying that she just was. Like there was no thought, which I think is just interesting. In all of these stories, it's like there is no, like I just think about myself and how I spiral. And before I make any decision, I go through all the worst case scenarios and I just question every decision so deeply. But it just sounds like in this part, in this near-death experience, you just do and you move and you experience and you don't question. You don't really think, overthink Mm -hmm. things. You just act and go and do. So she continues through this light towards this voice that is calling her, walking in pure light. And she said nothing else existed except for this pure light. And then all of a sudden she was in a room and she could tell and feel a presence behind her. And this presence put a hand on her shoulder, but told her not to turn around. And he spoke to her calmly and reassuringly and told her she had to go back, that she couldn't stay here because she had to get back to her body because she had an important job to do. And then Natasha woke up the next morning in her body. And not only was she still alive, keep in mind, the doctor said she would not make it through the night. She was still alive and Her illness had almost all but passed. Oh, my gosh. The doctor was just, like, completely befuddled. No one could explain it. It was a medical miracle. Natasha had survived when she shouldn't have. And then this is the story of Teresa McLean. German-born Teresa McLean was three years old when she accidentally ate two bottles of chewable baby aspirin. Her mother obviously frantically rushed her to the hospital, which is where poor little Teresa's physical body started to give up. And Teresa's soul left her body. She describes her near-death experience as a movie shown in split screen, which I think is so interesting. Like she saw two different things happening at once. Yeah. And like she was watching it. On one side, she saw the doctors and nurses working tirelessly on her coding body. And then on the other side, she saw her mother in the waiting room sobbing. And similar to Ingrid's story, she felt her mother's emotions like they were her own. And for just a moment, Teresa was terrified by that, but it only lasted a moment because then, right after that experience, Teresa saw her mother, but many years in the future. And in that moment, like all this information just like was flooded into her mind and she just inherently knew things. No one told her anything. It just, she saw her mother many years in the future and she just knew that in this future, in this future that she was being shown, her parents were divorced and that her mother was struggling to survive without her daughter. In seeing this, Teresa knew she had to come back to her body and she had to live and she had to stay for her mom. So she basically saw a version of reality where she died 
she was given an alternate timeline and shown it, which I think to me also proves that alternate timelines and dimensions exist. Yeah. So within seconds of thinking that she had to survive, she returned to her body and the doctors found her pulse again. Okay. And the last story I will tell you about is about a boy named Tom. Tom was four years old and the son of Gary, a British soldier. And at this time, Tom was complaining of a terrible stomach pain and he just like kept having aches and it was happening for days. And it got so bad that he was just like physically writhing in pain. Mm-hmm. So Gary, his father, rushed him to the hospital where the doctors discovered a dangerous intestinal blockage and began operating almost immediately. And according to the doctors, it was touch and go. And there were times they were worried they would lose Tom, but he survived. And Gary was just relieved that his son survived. So like he didn't, you know, ask or think of any anything extra. But a few weeks later, Tom keeps bringing up a park and he keeps saying, I want to go back to that park. Gary's like, I don't know what park you're talking about. So Tom finally tells him, the park I went to when I was in the hospital. So, of course, Gary is asking all these questions. And according to Tom, when he was in the hospital, he went through a tunnel to a park. And when he got to the park, he saw that there were lots of children and swings and toys and lots of fun things. And there was this really pretty white fence around the park. And Tom told his father that he tried to climb over the fence, but a man stopped him and told him that Tom wasn't allowed to come yet. And then the man led Tom back to the tunnel and told him to return. And Tom returned to the hospital. And that's when the doctors like got him back. Like he had coded. He had had a cardiac arrest. He had died on the operating table and was brought back to life. But it was Tom being sent back to his body. And then, okay, like I told you, I feel like I went down this whole web of medical journals and everything, and I found an article on the National Library of Medicine archives where there were a bunch of scientists that interviewed 11 patients between the ages of 3 to 16 years old who had survived critical illnesses and including cardiac arrest and profound comas, and they found that 7 of the 11 had out-of-body near-death experiences. Five patients entered a darkness. Four remember being in a tunnel and three remember actively choosing to return to their bodies. And very sadly for all of us, I was not able to access the full article without a subscription, which was like $300 a year. And I, (laughs) so I was very close to putting in our podcast credit card number, but I I I would have seen the alert come through. Is this you? Are you (laughs) medical journal subscriptions? Sorry, Corinne. It's for our podcast. (laughs) It's a business expense. (laughs) Anyway, I couldn't get the article, so I'm super bummed. But I saw like a little like snippet from it. They also interviewed 29 similar survivors who, when they were near death, had to be intubated or given narcotics or there was other medical intervention methods used. And not one of those 29 had memory of the time that they were unconscious, which I thought was really interesting. Like, why do some people have near-death experiences and others don't? And is there a link between narcotics and medicine that you're given, which prevent you from having or remembering perhaps your near-death experience? I don't know. I didn't get to read the full article because <laughs> I don't know. Maybe after this, I will I will put put our information in and you and I will both have access to it. And then back in the 80s, Dr. Melvin Morse 
worked in a pediatric intensive care unit, and he'd heard so many tales of near-death experiences from children in his ward and became very curious. So he carried out a bunch of research and asked all these children and got more information. And he actually followed them for 10 years. So he interviewed 30 childhood and near-death experience survivors and found that all 30 of them seemed to be living really wonderful lives. They were good at schoolwork, mentally stable, and extremely empathetic, and not one of them had become addicted to drugs or alcohol. And then another doctor, Dr. Atwater, discovered that children who have near-death experiences are more likely to have long-lasting relationships when they're older, which is in contrast to adults who experience near-death experiences, because apparently adults who have NDEs have a higher divorce rate than average. So basically, they'll like have this near-death experience and realize that the person they're with is not the right person, or maybe they've wanted to leave them for a long time and finally do because they realize there's so much more that they need to experience in life. I guess that makes sense because children learn before they vet partners, whereas adults most likely already have a partner. And then given their newfound knowledge and just like the growth that they had, I'm sure Mm -hmm. it goes beyond romantic relationships. I'm sure there's a lot of friendships and like family relationships that end up dissolving because of it. I also imagine they have less, they hold less grudges and they're just, you know, Mm -hmm. they understand that this life is not to say you have to live this life as it's temporary, but they understand that this life, like it's not worth holding on to anger and those type of emotions, you know? I would like to know, are they are they just really good at managing their emotions and, and somewhat unbothered and unfazed by a lot that happens? Or do they hmm. still experience all the same things, but they just come to terms with it and forgive more quickly? I imagine it's the latter because I can't – because I imagine they still come back to their human mind, right? So they're still experiencing this life, but they have the knowledge – and like calmness almost, I think, from the near-death experience. I, I also imagine they're really good at meditating. Like I feel like they're very peaceful. They have a good mm-hmm. inner peace. And okay, this is also really interesting. This doctor found that children who have had NDEs also have lower blood pressure than average, have more sensitivity to light and sound. And this makes me laugh. They often pissed off church officials because they were quote unquote disruptive and would ask (laughs) questions that these officials had no answers to. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, this actually, I would love to see an experiment where they put a group of people together in a room, some of them having had near-death experiences and some of them having not. And bring in people that are sensitive to like energies and just like are more spiritual and see if people can point out like if there's a certain like glow and aura about those people oh. that people who are sensitive to the vibrations and energies in the spirit world would be able to pick those people out and say this person has been okay. to the other side. Corinne, it sounds like you and I will be submitting our research to a medical journal so maybe, maybe they'll, they'll give us a subscription for free the subscription fee <laughs> if we submit our own paper uh please let's do it this is so fascinating i mean there's just so much i mean clearly there are so many people doing research about this but it's so fascinating and i just love these stories and it's obviously such a blessing that these kids survive near-death encounters But similarly, like I said, with Ingrid's story, like a lot of them have a hard time adjusting back to life after this. And it Mm -hmm. brings about all sorts of psychological matters. And 
There was one thing I was reading, one medical journal that I couldn't get access to that was saying that the (laughs) feeling of happiness that they feel in this near-death experience is so overwhelming that it can often have a negative effect on children when they return. So it kind of answers your question where it's like, are they able to feel things the same way? Like I think because they felt that overwhelming happiness and they come back to this life and it's not a constant feeling. Yeah, it's a diluted version of – yeah. Yeah. I imagine it's nothing. What we feel, what happiness we feel. I mean, <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm being dark about the life we're living, but <laughs> I just feel like the, I mean, I'm already a dark, I already have depression. And all no, stuff, I get so. it. It's like the version of watching TV that's in color versus the version. In yeah. Black and white. Yeah. It's the Claritin peel. What's that? The Claritin oh, clear. Oh, the commercials. <laughs> The Claritin for I that woo, I got there, but it took me a second to know what you were talking about. Yes, the allergy medicine commercials where the fog is lifted. They you pull can away finally the, see and feel yeah. and live your life full, fully. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Doing all of this and talking about near death experiences. And I already felt like I was gonna be a great, glorious ghost after this, but now I'm just like, it's you know, we're not just buried in the dirt and it's the end. There's more there's light there's family pets love there's i don't know there's peace there's there's more which is just really reassuring yeah definitely it feels like there's so much and there's so many dimensions and so many possibilities of where you could go or what you could learn when you do cross over but it from these stories it kind of sounds like there's there's like one main group that's in charge of all of it that it's not necessarily like this person owns hell, this person owns heaven, this person owns purgatory, this person owns this or that. It's just like a group of higher beings yeah. from at least the two that I read that kind of control all of it. Right. And I also wonder, while I was doing research on this, I was like, we talk about guardian angels a lot, like mm-hmm. how we all have guardian angels and sometimes there's family members and whatnot. But then it's like, are guardian angels in the same group as higher beings or are higher beings like something we also don't understand yet? I have so many questions about that. I don't know. When we talk about simulations, people are like, oh, or one of the theories is that we're all these one beings, we're all these higher beings, but there's just some of us that essentially like volunteered to go through this simulation, to go through this experience of what it would be like to try to figure out right from wrong and morals and how to, you know, do better and level up in your next character life, but that we're all somewhat even when we do cross over. I don't know, though. Obviously, no one does. And we never will. I mean, we will eventually. But the closest people to knowing what actually is going on are these people who've experienced. I yes, I'm so glad we have the listener stories. But if you have had a near death experience, please email us and like, let's have an interview. Let's set it up. Literally, we need to know. I love hearing this stuff and I love these stories so much. And as much as it warms my heart and excites me, I also am like filled with goosebumps while also sweating my ass off listening to all of this stuff. Alrighty. Shall we read listener stories? Yes. Okay. This is from Brianna. Hey, girls. Obligatory longtime listener here. I'm not sure if I've sent you this before, but I'll send it again just in case. (laughs) LOL. I died when I was a kid. I was really young, kindergarten age or less. I only know this because my sister wasn't born yet, and I was at my grandparents' house as they were babysitting me that day as usual. I don't remember a whole lot before the event, just that it was sometime in the early to mid-afternoon, and I was kind of sick that day. 
I was a sick kid, so nothing out of the norm. I remember walking through my grandparents' house from the front door through the living room, kitchen, and den, and then back out the door to the busted wheelchair ramp. I stepped off the side of the ramp onto what was supposed to be leaves and pine needles, but instead was a cold, hard floor. I looked around, and instead of being in the yard, I was in an empty white room that was a little foggy. You know the train station in the Deathly Hollows when Harry died? It looked like that, but no train station. Just an empty room with some benches. I was pretty calm about it. I didn't think it was too strange, or if I did, I didn't mind. I started jumping off the benches, entertaining myself, (laughs) when a couple more kids around my age appeared. I don't remember introducing myself to them, but we just happened to be in the same place at the same time, so we started playing. One was a boy right my age, blonde hair, and the other was a girl, maybe a year or two older than us. And she had darker skin than me, very curly dark hair. I'm not sure how long we played, but I remember that they left at some point and I was left alone. And then a man appeared. He was older, maybe in his 50s, neatly trimmed gray beard, salt and pepper hair, gray suit, gray briefcase. He popped his briefcase open on a bench and he knelt down to my level. He started talking about my life, everything that was happening, my plans, what I liked and what I didn't like, the whole nine yards. After talking for who knows how long, he stood back up, he held his hand out, and he said, are you ready to go? I was a kid. I didn't really understand death. I did understand that I should not go anywhere with strangers, though. (laughs) So I shook my head. Mama will be here soon to pick me up, and she would miss me. Mama being my other grandmother that had always picked me up at 3 p.m. to take me home. After I said that, he just smiled. He knelt back down to my level. He said, okay. And he pushed me by my shoulders and I fell back into the real world. No. It was all a blur after that. And the rest was told to me by my grandmother. Apparently, I was running an incredibly high fever of over 103 degrees Fahrenheit. And I was basically boiling my brain alive. That can kill a kid of my age at that time. And Mama saved the day by showing up just in time to put a cold towel on me and rush me to the doctor as soon as she saw how weird I was acting. But yeah, that's uh, my story. I've had a few dreams with the boy that I met in the room, and I've seen the room twice since then. I can write about those if I haven't already, if you're interested. Yes, Anyways, Tell Dan Fugi, see you on the other side, Brianna. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Need to read that. I'm literally going to look right wow. now to see if she's emailed that to us. And if so, I'm going to read it in the next encounters. Please do. Um, but otherwise, Brianna, please send it to us. Wow. She didn't. She didn't send it. Brianna, please. Okay. <laughs> I'm not <Now> I'm mad. <laughs> We're talking about like forgiveness, not holding grudges, That's... being like emotionally regulated. Brianna, and now you're mad. Oh my gosh. Okay, I am so curious if I mean these other kids are for sure 100 real humans who live in this world or did and have passed away, and I just feel like there's a way to find out who they are or were. Especially if she's seen the boy again. Like, I don't know. Next time, Brianna, ask him a few questions. What his name is, where he's from. And let's find out what happened to him. Okay. This is giving me a memory of – and this isn't a real experience that I had. But that show, Touched by an Angel, was (laughs) on in like the 90s. There was an episode where a little kid was in a coma and he was basically wandering around this like city in his mind. His spirit was wandering around this one city and it was kind of just like lost. And so what makes me wonder is if this blank place, if this wasn't the other side, but if this was like a holding facility to know for people that were in comas, for people that weren't 
dead necessarily, but were like very close to it or unconscious, if this is where their soul goes to hang out until it's time to go one way or the other. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about like the train station. I'm trying to think of why he would still be in the room. Well, he could have had a near-death experience or been dying at that exact moment. Right. And especially because he left. But she's she's continued to see him there. But I guess that's the same is said for him probably seeing her. Like maybe he's alive and he's like, I keep seeing this one girl that I saw that one time. Well, here's what's really interesting. And this is something that I was thinking when I was doing my research is so many of these experiences are so similar to astral projection and astral traveling that Mm -hmm. I'm so curious if those worlds are connected in a way like this place that you go to in a near-death experience and where you go when you're astral traveling and if that's how they're seeing each other. Do you remember the setting and and what it looked like when you have had dream visitations? Because more likely than not, you're probably going to them. You're astral projecting. So the time that I astral projected, the one that like felt the most – and it's interesting now thinking about it. Like there was no other feeling. It was truly just like existing. But – It was in the apartment that I lived in at the time. So like I basically could feel like my body was not with me and there was a woman Mm -hmm. sitting in my living room and I talked to her for a while and then I like traveled through the hallway. So it it was more like astral projecting, but it was in this world. But that's kind of what some of these near-death experiences are, right? Like they can see their family members wherever they are. Right. And then as for dreams with family it's kind of been like a nondescript a few with my pop-up have been in the backyard that i grew up visiting him in and then with my grandma it's like been a nondescript like grassy knoll interesting a grassy knoll are you like in ireland are you in new zealand i don't know that sounds fun (laughs) i don't know wow oh so fascinating also i'm so sorry that you passed away and had to experience that fever and also so for your you're okay. grandparents to, to to experience the fear of, of all of Yeah, that. and finding you with like a 103-degree yeah. fever, oh my, you're so scary. I feel like the thing about incidents like this, especially with children, is usually the people that are the most scarred are the, the guardians, the parents, the yeah. people that are seeing it. And kids walk away and they're like, I don't really remember that. Or like, yeah, sure, I was fine. I was fine. Yeah, I mean, childhood is just supposed to be full of like fun, laughter, innocence, and like cereal. Okay, I have a story from Angel, and it's called A Near-Death Experience and a Birth. Hello, Sabrina and Corinne. I've just started listening to your podcast in no real order, but eventually I'll be on track. I recently heard the Near-Death Experience episode and have to tell you the story of how I got my name. My mom was 18 when she had me. It was a short fling with someone who left before she knew she was pregnant, so she was very weary of my birth and of raising me. Luckily, she had the love and support of my family to help, and by the time she went into labor, my name was already picked out. Everyone knew I was going to be Bailey Jean. Hours in, she was losing a lot of blood and falling in and out of consciousness. The doctors were worried about her chances of survival, and for a long time, she said she saw only darkness. Then, a glowing angel in all white came down to her. The angel said, you have to wake up. There's so much to be done. You have to raise this baby, and now is not your time. The angel didn't say anything else, but my mom somehow knew the angel's name was Dwanelle. When she came to, I was placed in her arms, and when the nurse asked what my name would be, 
Everyone in the room said Bailey Jean, but my mom shook her head and said, her name is Angel Dwinnell. Everyone in the room was so confused and pissed that she changed my name so last minute. (laughs) But I, for one, am very happy that my name is not BJ. (laughs) I have more stories about premonitions, which I'm waiting to share until I get to that episode, but you'll hear from me soon. I appreciate your combination of spookiness and comedy, Angel. P.S. Please do a live show in Portland sometime. Portland, Maine or Oregon? I don't care. We'll do both. both. Yeah. We'll do both. (laughs) Wow. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. And, you know, I know that she said her mom had some hesitancy in having the like birth and with raising her, given that it was a short fling with someone. But I feel like that it was almost like foretelling that something was going to basically go wrong with the pregnancy, the nervousness that she had around it or the hesitation, Mm -hmm. because. I feel like sometimes, you know, how people are like, oh, the mother's intuition, you just know. I've heard so many cases before of people who just know that something's going to go wrong when they give birth. They know that they're going to have some sort of medical injury and try to tell people. And they're like, it's fine. You're just being paranoid. And then it does happen in the delivery room. Yeah. I mean, this angel came to her and the angel wasn't asking, you know, hey, name your kid after me, (laughs) which I just think that how powerful this moment was to her mom that she named Angel after this angel who visited her. Right. Because it gave her faith and confidence. Exactly. And she had so much confidence in it that she didn't even need time to decompress. It's not like she was like, whoa, what happened to me? I don't know what I want to name my kid yet. Or it's Bailey Jean and then changes it later. It was like she died. She came back. Her baby was placed in her arms. And she knew that her name was not Bailey Jean. It was Angel. Actually, this is a really good point. I think one of the things that we haven't pointed out yet is that with all of these near-death experiences, when people come back from having contact with the other side, they come back with clarity. There's clarity and confidence. There's no talking through it, journaling, trying to figure out what exactly happened. They just know. That's what I mean. There's just like this serenity and peacefulness and just like assurance almost. Mm-hmm. Man, I kind of, I mean, I don't want to die and I don't want something <laughs> to happen to me that. where it happens. But it's also like, man, how nice would it be to just kind of be able to have that serenity and to float about life so much assurance in yourself and what happens after and your purpose and your interactions and the results of, of those interactions. Well, I hope that this episode gives people that assurance. I mean, like doing research and reading these stories, I think – kind of what I said before, just makes me realize that there is more and that there is no reason to fear the mm. beyond, you know? The only downside, I think, to this episode just being here to give reassurance is that the one thing we're missing, sure, we have the reassurance and we can hear what other people are saying about going about life, but we'll never be really good at math like those other kids. Who came back and were just solid students. We're good at other things. Also, I was really good at math in school. I was a great student. So. I know. Weren't you in advanced math? I mean, I only took like one math class in college, but in high school, yeah. Yeah. Well, wh- where have you been this episode? I needed you to help me out when I was trying to figure out. <laughs> I wasn't out. really sure what you were trying to say, to be honest. <laughs> it's okay. I confused myself. <laughs> 
Oh, man. Wow. You're right. Okay. We're good at other things, and the thing that we're good at is asking you to send your email so good at it. to us at two girls one ghost podcast at gmail.com. Sometimes we're not even good at this. Um, <laughs> I was just like, wait, do we have the word podcast in the, in the address or not? Yeah, after oh, about gosh. four years, I can confidently say it's two girls one ghost podcast at gmail.com. At gmail.com. Correct. Spelt out. There are a variety of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes. You can support us on Patreon. Depending on the tier that you choose on Patreon, you can pick the topic like Idol Whistle did for today's episode. You can follow us on social media. We have Facebook, Instagram, Twitter that I don't tweet on, TikTok that Corinne is going to make me become a TikToker in a couple of weeks or actually when this episode comes out. Maybe you'll see me on TikTok. And you will. <laughs> You will. That's for sure. Wow. It's in the calendar. It's in our, it's in my bachelorette schedule. Yes. Also, merch. We have merch a while yes. ago. Sabrina teased Bigfoot is my boyfriend merch. We have delayed launching it only because we wanted to test it out first before yes. throwing it out and there. Our orders on are on our way. So we will know hopefully by the time this episode comes out and we'll love it and it will be available for everyone. Mm -hmm. So just know it's either going to be out and you'll be alerted on instagram or the next episode or you know it's coming <laughs> or or whenever it happens it happens or when it happens it happens man it's summertime it is thank you so much to aiden manning and the entire team at upfire digital for editing this podcast we're very very grateful to have you on board and be a part of our team to make us sound less bad at our job and we will see you on the other, other side. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.